of Israel's kingship carries right on into 2 Samuel. And that's where we're headed today. 2 Samuel chapter 1. I invite you to listen now to the reading of God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. He said it, that it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil." From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. The sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet and who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our everlasting good. 
Let's pray in response to the reading of God's word and ask for his blessing now. Let's pray. Father, we do acknowledge that you are the great king over all the earth. Everything that you have decreed will most surely come to pass. Nothing of all that you have spoken will ever fall short. Not one of your good promises will ever fail. And so we come to your word expectantly, God, knowing that what you speak, you intend to do. What you promise, you will fulfill. And that even now, as we listen to the word being read and being preached, you are working in us the faith that pleases you for those who know Christ. We pray, God, that you would grant us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Pray, Father, that you would keep my words faithful to the scriptures and that you would give your people discernment that we might be built up in the truth that You might be glorified, that Christ might be exalted, and that the Gospel might spread, Father, further and further in our lives and then out from us to those who have yet to hear. We ask God for Your blessing now. In Jesus' name, Amen. God's kingdom must be attained in God's way. If you wanted to sum up the teaching of this chapter, that statement would serve you well. God's kingdom must be attained in God's way. If you've been with us through 1 Samuel, then you'll know this truth has been present throughout the narrative. David has been promised the throne of Israel, but David is not free to take that throne however he deems best. The kingdom ultimately belongs to God. And therefore, David must pursue the kingdom in the way that God has prescribed. This is why David would not kill Saul, even though he had opportunities to do so. God's kingdom cannot be won through your own strength, and divine promises are not permission slips to do what you want. God's kingdom must be attained in God's way, or else it cannot be attained at all. As we enter now into 2 Samuel, we begin to see just how deeply David embraces and therefore embodies this teaching. After years on the run, David hears what we might say is the best news of his life. Saul is dead. At long last, David's enemy has gotten what he deserved. Let the celebration begin, for the kingdom is ours. That's what we might say. And yet, that's not how David responds. Instead of rejoicing, David mourns. Would you mourn over the, over the person who took every opportunity to do you harm? Would you weep for someone whose life goal was to torment you? I don't think that I would. But David does. It's a striking display of restraint, isn't it? The throne of Israel is now closer than ever. I mean, it's so close he can taste it. And still, David strives to attain that throne in a way that honors the Lord. In a way then, this chapter is the pinnacle of the contrast between Saul and David. I mean, think about it, friends. What better way to distinguish the two kings than by showing us how David responds to Saul's death? As we witness David weep over this man who tried to kill him, we find ourselves saying, yes, this is a different kind of king. This is a better king. This is a good king. This is a king who pursues God's kingdom in God's way. As we look now to the details of the chapter, I'd like us to see three distinct ways that David responds to Saul's death. 
David does not have the throne yet. That happens in a few chapters. But each response here in chapter 1 clearly establishes David as the Lord's true king. So that's how we'll organize the teaching of the text. Three responses from the Lord's true king. The first comes in verses 1-12. to The true king exhibits godliness. The true king exhibits godliness. David has returned home to Ziklag after defeating the Amalekites, but he hasn't yet heard the news of Israel's battle against the Philistines. We know what has happened, but David's in the dark, so to speak, waiting for the news to come. And as verse 2 tells us, David doesn't have to wait very long. Three days after the battle, a messenger shows up and his physical appearance is an ominous sign. Notice again what the text says. A man came with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Friends, those are signs of of mourning. The messenger's appearance almost tells the whole story. Even so, David is not content with appearances. He asks for more information. And beginning in verse 6, the messenger provides this elaborate, detailed report. It's almost too detailed, in fact. The messenger, who is an Amalekite, by the way, he saw Saul surrounded by chariots and enemies. And despite those formidable odds, the Amalekite was able to walk up and engage Saul in conversation. And then the important point comes in verse 9. Look again. He said to me, that is, Saul said to the Amalekite, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me. Yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure he could not live after he had fallen. So how does the Amalekite know that Saul is dead? Quite simply, because the Amalekite killed him. And for proof, the Amalekite offers Saul's crown and his armlet. You can almost see the moment there, can't you? This ragged, dirty messenger bowing low to the ground. And here he is giving David the symbols of royal authority. This Amalekite is crowning David. That's what he thinks. Now, of course, this raises a pressing question for us as readers of Scripture. Has the Bible just contradicted itself? I mean, what are we to make of the Amalekites' story? Clearly, it doesn't fit with what we read in 1 Samuel 31. In 1 Samuel 31, Saul kills himself. But here, an Amalekite claims to have done the deed. So which is it? Or has the biblical author just tied himself up in knots without realizing it? Well, if you read some of the scholars on this point, you'll find some rather elaborate attempts to reconcile the two accounts. For my part, I would suggest that the simplest solution is the correct one. The Amalekite is lying. The Amalekite is lying. I like how one Old Testament commentator has put it. If the options are between the biblical narrator and an Amalekite, then the choice is easy. Always believe the biblical narrator. Never trust an Amalekite. And I don't think this is just a guess. There are, there are holes all through his story. If Saul were surrounded by chariots and enemies, how is there time to have a conversation in Saul's life and then get away? What's more, if he had time to remove Saul's crown and Saul's armlet, why not also take Saul's body to prevent the Amalekites from abusing it? You see, when you read it again, it's it's just it's far-fetched. The Amalekite is doing what Amalekites always do. 
He's lying. But that raises another question. Why, why lie? Why, why concoct this story? Well, this is where we get to the heart of it. The Amalekite has misjudged David's character. He thinks David will be glad to hear this news. So glad, in fact, that he'll reward this man who made it all happen. Again, the story is told in a way that is meant to capture your imagination so that you can see it. This sleazy Amalekite bowing low, presenting the crown, and then thinking to himself, what a fine reward I'm going to get now. I bet David even gives me a job in his administration with a nice salary in a corner office. You see, he's misjudged David's character. Or to put it more pointedly, the Amalekite believes David is like Saul. Conniving, rapacious, and concerned only for himself. But that's just it. David is a different kind of king than Saul. To be sure, David wants the throne, but he's also committed to getting the throne in God's way. And this becomes very clear in how David responds. Notice again verses 11 and 12. I'll read them again because they're so striking and so full of godliness. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Friends, what should get your attention here is that David's first response is grief. We're going to examine this more closely later in the sermon, but for now, Just let it sink in that David does not respond with rejoicing, even though Saul had tried to kill him. David doesn't celebrate that now he can go home. He doesn't even breathe a sigh of relief that his days on the run are over. Saul made his life miserable. And still, David's first response is to weep. Now, Do you think David would have responded this way if he had been nursing some grudge against Saul? I don't think so. Do you think David could have wept like this if his heart were full of bitterness? No. Bitterness doesn't lend itself to grief. Do you think David could display this kind of emotion over someone that he called his enemy? No. Enemies don't get our pity, let alone our tears. Do you see what I'm getting at here, friends? It was the condition of David's heart. It was godliness on the inside. The condition of David's heart that allowed him to respond in this way that honors the Lord. You see, David is reminding us here of something that we often forget. Our outward responses are the overflow of our heart's condition. Outward responses are the overflow of our heart's condition. What you see on the outside is simply the fruit of what's already there on the inside. David displays godliness because he's taken the time to cultivate a godly heart. In this way, David anticipates the teaching of the Lord Jesus who told His disciples, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Friends, this is one of the fundamental principles of Christian discipleship. And it's on display here in 2 Samuel. Outward responses reveal our inward heart condition. When I snap at my kids, it's really not about my kids. 
It's about me and my heart. I'm not getting something I want, so I take it out on them. Do you see how the diagnosis works? How you respond to life, brothers and sisters, is telling you something about the state of your heart. That's not to say our responses are absolute indicators of spiritual health. There are unique seasons of things like depression or illness or fatigue that can affect the way that we respond in all sorts of ways. But overall, our responses are good barometers of our hearts showing us where we need to cultivate godliness. David responds like this because of what's already inside. So what are your responses telling you, friends? How are you doing in the good, hard work of cultivating godliness at the heart level? I really really want us to to understand how this works here. I could stand up here and say, you should be sad when bad things happen to people. And that would be completely missing the point. David responds in a godly way, not because he's a superhero or just exceptionally spiritual. He responds with godliness because he's taken the time to cultivate a godly heart. And from that example, we should then ask ourselves, what kind of heart am I cultivating? So that my response to life might display the same sort of godly character. The true king exhibits godliness and therefore he's calling us to do the same. As we continue on in the chapter, David gives us a second response to Saul's death. This time in verses 13 to 16. The true king executes justice. The true king executes justice. Verse 13 resumes the conversation between David and the Amalekite. And things don't go as the Amalekite expects. He expects a reward. And I I guess in one sense, that's what he gets. He gets a reward. It's just not the kind of reward he's looking for. Now, we're not sure if David believes the Amalekites' story. The text doesn't tell us one way or another. But in a sense, it it actually doesn't matter. David treats the Amalekite on the basis of what the man said. If you think of a courtroom, it helps illustrate the situation. In a court of law, the judge has to make his decision based on the evidence and the testimony that he has. That's all the judge has to go on. And so it is here with David. He puts the Amalekite on trial, so to speak, And David responds to the evidence and the testimony that he's been given. The fact that the Amalekite is very likely lying simply serves to remind us that deception always costs us more than we expect. Don't miss that reminder, friends. The Amalekite lies because he wants a reward, but the reward he gets is justice. Deception always costs you more than you expect. For the Amalekite, the cost is his life. David hands down the sentence in verse 15, and it's administered swiftly. But the the entire exchange is narrated in a way that highlights the justice of David's decision. This is important, friends. This is important. David is not acting in rage here. He's not losing his cool and lashing out in anger. And the exchange makes this clear. Just notice with me the, the justice of David's decision. First of all, the sentence is deserved. Look at verse 13. David asks the Amalekite about his background, and notice what the man says. I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. Now, 
a sojourner was a special type of resident in the nation of Israel. It wasn't just any kind of foreigner. A sojourner was a foreigner who had agreed to live among God's people on the basis of God's Word. In other words, a sojourner both knew God's Word and lived under its authority. And the Amalekite is one such person, or he's the son of such a person. So catch what this means. The Amalekite cannot plead ignorance. He can't plead ignorance. He would have known that the king was God's anointed, and therefore no one had the authority to strike the king except God Himself. You see, he's an Amalekite, but he's not ignorant. He's grown up among God's people, hearing God's Word. And therefore, the sentence he receives is deserved. It's just. We should also notice that the sentence is delivered in relationship to God. Look at verse 14 and notice David's question. How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Now, it's significant that David does not refer to Saul by name. He doesn't say, why, was, why were you not afraid to kill Saul? He says, kill the Lord's anointed. And then look again at verse 16. He does the same thing. Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. You see, David is not taking personal vengeance. And he's not even acting in relationship to Saul, per se. David delivers the sentence in relationship to God. Yes, David is grieved over Saul's death, but he's also compelled to act for the sake of the Lord's honor. It's God's name and God's glory that are driving David to act. Friends, this is the foundation for all true justice. It's the desire for God's name and God's truth to be honored and administered in the world. Justice is not so much about equity as it is about God's truth applied faithfully in all areas of life for the good of all people. Let me say that again. Justice is not so much about equity as it is about God's truth applied faithfully in all areas of life for the good of all people. Remember, friends, justice is above all a divine attribute lived out in God's world in relationship to God Himself. And that's part of what makes David's decision a just one because he acts on the basis of God's truth for the sake of God's name applied faithfully in the world to all kinds of people. So look back at verse 15 where David calls for the Amalekite to be executed. What is, he, what is David doing here? Not acting in rage, not losing his cool, not lashing out. He's enforcing justice. And in doing so, he reveals himself to be the true king God is raising up to shepherd His people. Before we move on, friends, there's something else I want to draw out here for us in connection with this point about justice. We've seen throughout our series in Samuel that the life of David points us ahead to the life and work of Jesus Christ. David is the shadow. Christ is the substance. So when we see David exposing the wicked and administering justice, we're reminded that there's a day coming when the Lord Jesus will enforce perfect justice in His own eternal kingdom. And on that day, listen to me, on that day, all the tears and all the suffering of all of God's people will be wiped away and all the wrongs will be made right because God is just. 
That day is coming, friends. David's commitment to justice points us to Christ. And therefore, it should encourage us not to lose heart in the midst of dark and evil days we face in this world. We do not have to shrink into the shadows, afraid that the schemes of the wicked will overcome Christ's church. We do not have to cower before a culture that denies God's truth and defames God's name. We can live today in light of that last day. This is one of the great aspects of being a Christian. We know the future is secure, so I can live like it today. We can live today in the confidence that God's justice will triumph. And what's more, we can even pursue God's justice ourselves. Seeking to apply God's truth faithfully in all areas of life for the good of all people. That's justice. Apply God's truth faithfully in all areas of life for the good of all people with no distinction. And we can do this because we've seen the great evidence of God's commitment to justice. We've seen the greatest evidence. We've seen the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not forget, brothers and sisters, that it was God's justice as well as God's grace that led our Lord Jesus to the cross. Jesus died to show us God's mercy. He died to show us God's love. He died to show us God's grace. But He also died to show us God's justice. That God will not let evil go unpunished. He died to show us that the wickedness of this world will be confronted and dealt with once and for all. It's the cross of Christ that assures us of the justice of God. And therefore, it's in light of the cross that we can live confident and just lives, faithfully applying God's truth in all areas of life for the good of all people with no distinction. That's justice. The true King enforces justice. So may we be encouraged and hopeful and committed to doing the same. That brings us to the final response from David to Saul's death, which picks up on an earlier point in the passage. The true king embraces grief. The true king embraces grief. You'll notice that the form of the passage changes in verse 19, what starts in verse 17 and then becomes clear in verse 19. It changes from prose to poetry. And that's because verses 17 to 27 are a lament song. If you know much about David's life, then you're not surprised that he would write a song on this occasion. David is the sweet psalmist of Israel, so in this time of loss, he, he turns to what he knows. David sings. Now, there's more in this song than we have the time to unpack this morning. It really is a moving composition, one that reminds us of numerous other lament songs we find in the Psalter. And so we can't note all of the details of David's song, but there are a few characteristics I want to draw to your attention just briefly. First of all, notice that David's grief is purposeful. Notice how carefully crafted this song is. The theme is stated in verse 19, how the mighty have fallen. And then David repeats the theme in verse 25, and again at the end in verse 27, that ties the song together. You see, this is more than a raw outpouring of emotion. 
This is a carefully crafted, well-composed lament. In other words, David spent time thinking about what happened, and then he sat down, put ink to parchment, and he grieved purposefully. Friends, I take this to be rather instructive, don't you? There is a common but unfortunate refrain in our world that goes like this. Well, you know, death is just a part of how things are. It's just a part of life. You just have to deal with it. And while I understand what folks are getting at, such a statement is simply wrong. Death may be universal, but it's not right. It's not how things are supposed to be. And this is why purposeful expressions of grief, like the one we see here from David, are so important and right and good. It's more than grief. It's actually a testimony to the watching world, proclaiming that while death is universal, it's not right, and it's certainly not good. You see, when we grieve, we tell the truth about ourselves and about this world and about God. Grieving is truth-telling. And that's true of David's song here in 2 Samuel. By crafting something purposeful, David grieves Israel's loss, but more than that, he's declaring that we need redemption. Even more resurrection. We need someone to come and make God's world right once more. That's why grief is always appropriate. Because it's truth-telling. It's purposeful. It's the first characteristic of David's song. His grief is purposeful. Notice also that David's grief is honest. It's honest. He acknowledges that what has happened is truly tragic. Look at verse 20. David wishes that the Philistines would not rejoice over Saul's death. Gath and Ashkelon are Philistine cities. So he wishes that they wouldn't rejoice. Of course, that's exactly what the Philistines are doing. But that's part of David's point. It's too much for him to think about Philistine parades. He's brokenhearted. And he's honest about it. Notice also verse 21. David wishes there would be no rain on the mountains of Gilboa. That's where Saul and Jonathan died. On the mountains of Gilboa. In other words, David asks for the entire creation to join in his lament. Have you ever been so brokenhearted that you wished the world around you, including the trees and the rocks and the skies, would be brokenhearted too? If Saul lost his life on Gilboa, then let Gilboa's hills be lifeless as well. Do you see the honesty of David's grief? He doesn't shy away from reality. This is awful. And he acknowledges it head on. His grief is honest. What a good reminder, brothers and sisters, that godliness does not equal stoicism. Godliness does not equal stoicism. David is a man after God's own heart and he is brokenhearted over what happened. Both of them exist together in the same person. He firmly believes in God's sovereignty and yet he is in anguish over Israel's loss. Godliness is not stoicism, friends. When tragedy strikes, God's people have the freedom to express their grief with honesty. Now, to be sure, we must be careful not to impugn God's character or question God's motives. Those emotions are never right. It's never right to be angry at God. But there is a place for honest expressions of anguish and heartbreak. This is how David grieved. And it's how we're invited to grieve as well, with honesty. 
Notice also that David's grief is gracious. It's gracious. Do you know what I find most striking about David's song? There's not even a hint of Saul's wicked treatment of David. There's not even a hint of it. I mean, I even tried to read between the lines in order to find some suggestion that Saul was actually a bad guy. And it's, I couldn't find anything. It's just not there. In fact, when David does reference Saul, he does so in a gracious way. To put it simply, David remembers Saul in the best light. Verse 22, Saul was pictured as heroic. His sword did not return empty. He struck down his enemies. Verse 23, Saul was seen as mighty. He's swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. Clearly, David's not speaking literally. He's using imagery to express Saul's status as a warrior. This was a mighty man, David says. And let's remember him that way. Now, does David deserve such a remembrance? No, he doesn't. I mean, does Saul deserve such a remembrance? No, he doesn't. Not at all. But David calls for it anyway because David's grief is full of grace. Friends, if you're bothered that Saul gets remembered in the best life, then you might not understand the grace of God. David's grief is gracious. Finally, David's grief is fervent. It's fervent. Perhaps the most well-known part of David's song is verse 26, where he focuses exclusively on Jonathan. It's significant and not surprising that David ends with Jonathan. He's gracious towards David, but he gives Jonathan the pride of place here at the end. Notice in verse 26 that David says he is distressed. The idea here is to be troubled, even tormented, over the fate of a friend. And that's how David feels at this point. I spent a few minutes trying to think of a way that I could describe or capture the emotion of verse 26, but I, I've never experienced that, so I don't, have a, I don't have a description. Heartbroken, I guess, is as close as I can come. Heartbroken. David goes on in verse 26 to explain why. Notice what he says. This is David speaking to Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Please don't let 2018 American culture color how you read that. David's not implying anything inappropriate, not in the least. Rather, David's point is that Jonathan's faithfulness surpasses any other relationship he's ever known. Jonathan has given David the love of self-denial, the love of self-sacrifice. I mean, think about it, friends. Jonathan had the kingdom, and he said, I'll give it up because I love you. And I believe God's word. Jonathan humbled himself so that David might be exalted. We mentioned this earlier in 1 Samuel, but it really is a picture of the disciples' response to the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, I must decrease so that he might increase. That's what Jonathan does. He humbles himself so that David could be exalted. And Jonathan did all of this because he believed God's word and because he loved David more than himself. Oh, for friends like Jonathan. And that's why David ends the song with his friend. David's grief is fervent. You know, friends, there's much we could take from David's song in terms of application, and we've tried to touch on a few of those.
takeaways already. But as I read through these verses, listening to Israel's king express his grief, I find that I'm not so much thinking about myself or how I can express my grief. Instead, I find myself thinking of words from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 55, to be exact, where the prophet speaks of Israel's Savior as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Ultimately, that's what we need to take away from David's grief in this passage. What are we watching here? What are we watching in these verses? We're watching Israel's king embrace his people's grief, even join them in it, and then lead them through it. Brothers and sisters, is this not what our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, has done? This is the most important application from 2 Samuel 1. Not that we can grieve our loss, as true as that is, but that God has given us a King who has embraced our grief, taken it as His own, and now leads us through it with faithfulness. So, brothers and sisters, listen to the description of our King from Isaiah 55. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely He has borne our our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. God's kingdom must be attained in God's way, friends. And the reality is, we could never follow that way on our own. But the good news of the Bible is that God has given us a true and greater King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that King has taken our grief in order to lead us through it until we reach the joy of the Father's kingdom. So may our hope be founded upon King Jesus, for He is with us in the sorrow that we might share with Him in the joy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your faithfulness to Your Word. Thank You for providing for Your people what You promised, a true and greater King who would attain your kingdom in your way and then would go about bringing your people into that kingdom through the power of His own indestructible life. Father, we rejoice at the evidences of grace we see in the life of David, but even more than that, we rejoice in David's greater Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Father, that you would root us firmly and deeply in Him and that we would remember, Father, that He is not just a Savior who saves from a distance, but He saves, Father, in the midst of the sorrows and grief of everyday life. He has taken them as His own, and He leads us now faithfully through them until that great day when we all enter into Your kingdom. Father, give us grace to trust in this Christ. And help us now, Father, as we prepare to come to His table. May we eat with faith that honors Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Shall we stand and let's sing together?